Welcome to the Personality Psychology Podcast. Hello. Hi. This is a new show on the science of how people are different from one another, where these differences come from, how they develop, and why they matter. We are three personality researchers and the hosts of this podcast. Since this is our very first episode, let us introduce ourselves. My name is René Muttus. I do research on how and why people differ from one another and teach this at the University of Edinburgh. I'm also the editor of the European Journal of Personality, which is one of the leading personality journals in the world. We publish some of the most important articles that shape the knowledge and thinking of personality. My name is Lisa Lidemore. I'm a PhD candidate at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. I'm also EGP's research communications editor, which means I'm responsible for increasing the visibility of the journal, as well as its high quality publications. My own research tends to focus on how adolescents develop their identity and also the story of who they are and how they became that person, which is referred to as their narrative identity. I am Rebecca Weidmann. I'm a postdoc fellow at Michigan State University, and I'm also an early career representative of the European Association of Personality Psychology. As a researcher, I'm interested in understanding how personality, well-being and close relationships interact with each other across time. And I'm very excited that together we co-host the Personality Psychology podcast. I think with this podcast, we tried to achieve two things. First, we want to give something to general audience who are not personality psychologists, but are interested in learning about how and why people are different and why this matters. Second, we also want to offer something to personality scientists and psychologists more generally by discussing key research topics and involving a range of interesting researchers in these discussions. At the end of every month, another episode is released. These episodes have different formats. For our group discussions, we invite two or more researchers to join a conversation about a specific research topic, like we did for today's episode. During these group discussions, we dissect definitions, discuss previous and current results, and learn more about a specific line of research. For our interviews, we interview one person at a time about their work and their life as a researcher. For our talks, we invite researchers to present what they have found in their own work as a personality scientist. It is important to us that we interview and discuss personality psychology not only with researchers that have had a lot of experience in the field already, but also with younger upcoming scientists. We therefore aim to invite a lot of different researchers in the field and hopefully mirror the different research strands that make personality psychology unique. And of course, we will keep you up to date with summaries of some of the latest articles published in the European Journal of Personality. And this will happen at the end of every episode. We hope you can join us in learning more about the field of personality research. At this point, we would like to thank the European Association of Personality Psychology for sponsoring the podcast. We would also like to thank Joanne Chung for being so generous to share our art with us. The music of our podcast is by Ketza, provided by the Tribe of Noise. So Renee, for today's episode, you have had a group discussion about the definition of personality and the field's uniqueness and accomplishments, right? Oh yes, I have talked to Julia Rohr and Jörg Denissen. Let's drive right in. Today, I'm very happy to talk to two personality psychologists whose names are known to many, if not most psychologists who are interested in personality and individual differences. Julia Rohr, lecturer at the University of Leipzig, and Jörg Denissen, 
professor at the University of Utrecht. For start, perhaps you could say a few words about yourself. Yeah, like you just said, um, I'm essentially like a postdoc slash lecturer at um, University of Leipzig. Um, my research interests are a bit um, eclectic, I would say. I've been doing a lot of work on the effects of birth order position on personality, but I also got um, a certain focus on methods, um, causal inference in particular. And so um, right now I'm at a career stage where I'm really kind of trying to figure out what I find um, most productive to pursue in my career. And so I do think that this um, discussion might get very interesting for me from a personal perspective as well. Renee, thank you for the invitation. I'm very happy that uh, that we talk. My name, yeah, you have uh, said it already, Jaap Denison. I'm working in the Netherlands. And my research is uh, at the interface between well, developmental psychology. I'm a developmental psychologist also by training and personality psychology and social psychology. And well, I'm, I'm a bit longer working in the field already, but I'm still looking for topics. I'm still struggling to define what my line of research is like Julia. And if I summarize it, it is often by using a, a term like person environment transactions. So how people affect their environment, how environments shape people, and, and what are the dynamic yeah, sources of influence between the two. Well, thank you. So I think we, we intend this podcast to be for, both for general audience who are interested in personality psychology, but also personality psychologists themselves who do the research and, and who teach students. And as a result, it seems fitting if we start with some of the biggest and perhaps most general questions about personality. So what is really personality and what is personality science as a result? And what are some of the main advances personality science has made by now? But also what are some of the biggest challenges that it's currently facing? And I hope that this way we can lay a solid ground for this podcast uh, series and perhaps we can avoid sneaking in some uh, major assumptions about what the podcast will be about in the future. So to start, I have these two related questions to you. In your opinion, what is personality and what makes personality science unique among other fields of psychology? So um, for me, personality has a really broad definition. So it's essentially all the ways in which people's minds and behaviors vary from one another, right? And so this is like a really broad definition and that already sets personality apart in that way that it cuts across all other fields. So you can be interested in, for example, social psychology and like how certain social um, factors influence people. But then you can also look at, okay, so how do people vary in these like social effects? Essentially for every field of psychology, you could tag like personality on top and ask, okay, so how do people vary in that dimension? So I think that would be like the, the very broadest possible definition, which also means that essentially personality psychologists could be interested in anything that psychologists are interested in, just from a particular perspective. I like Julia's uh, description a lot. I really endorse, like Julia, a very broad definition. And in my own thinking, I'm very much uh, yeah, a student of Gordon Alport. And in that sense, I do deviate perhaps a little bit from what Julia described. 
because for me there is a difference between on the one hand differential psychology so the study of individual differences and on the other hand the study of how these individual differences co-vary within the individual so looking at intrapsychic configurations and i think these intrapsychic configurations might be our unique selling point so how do these differences work together in one individual I think that's what might make us unique. And we need the knowledge from the differential psychology to understand these intrapsychic configurations. Of course, if we don't have good inputs, then yeah, we cannot say much about it. Could you give an example for such a configuration? Because it sounds so abstract to me. Well, an easy example is if you combine just two dimensions, right? So... You have the model that all personality psychologists and even some of our listeners outside of the discipline recognize, namely the big five model. And then you have five dimensions, of course, and two of them are extroversion and agreeableness. But those dimensions together, perhaps with some additional things added, and maybe you have to look more nuanced, But those combinations can result in interesting phenomena. So, for example, the trait of narcissism is much, much richer. People can imagine much better a particular person. And, and that trait involves, for example, high levels of extroversion and very low levels of agreeableness. So by mixing them together, you create something new. And then, of course, you have other dimensions. I mean, you can make the example as rich as you want to be, like, for example, intelligence. Like, do you have a very smart narcissist in front of you or a very um, stupid person? Uh, and then adding even more elements. So what kind of goals does that person have? Does that person have pro-social goals or anti-social goals? And by weaving together these variables, you get a more accurate Uh, picture I think of the person okay so your definition is more like so it's the combination of all things that sets a person apart from other people right yeah. and that would be unique per definition yeah I guess that's uh, that's a good translation or paraphrasing what I what I said yeah okay and so or any attempts to look at single traits would just be ways to slice that uniqueness in particular ways Yeah, exactly. Although uh, a level, like I said, a level of a certain trait can, can never be unique because you have this normal distribution and, and left and right of every specific level are other people with that specific level. Yeah, so the personality psychologists, at least in the original definition, would look at the a, at a, at a patterning between these levels. Right. To me, I have this impression that A lot of people in our field, when you ask them, what do you think personality psychology is mostly about? They would say that it's not as much about individual differences, but, uh, but about variability within individuals over time and, and, and across specific situations and configurations of this. What would you say about this? Would you agree that this is also the, something that makes personality science distinct? So I'm, I'm not sure I agree with the premise that people mostly think in terms of um, intra-individual variability, or at least they might be thinking in those terms, but when you look at the studies they actually run, it's mostly leveraging 
between subjects variability, right? I mean, there is now um, a stronger push for methods that um, use repeated assessments, so you can look at variability within people. But I think it's not yet the norm. So I do think um, most of the designs you see, um, at least published in our journals, rather speak to a conception of really between subject differences. And so as to the question whether this is something that um, sets personality psychology apart, like looking at the variations and associations within people. And so I do think that virtually all fields of psychology, including personality, are interested in those individual level causal effects, which are very much happening within the person. But the way we approach this is mostly through between subjects variability. And so I don't quite see how this would put personality psychology apart. So I do think everyone is interested in what is happening within a person. Everyone is wondering, oh, what would have happened if something had been different in the life of that person and so on. It's just that they don't always use that intensive repeated sampling data to try to answer that questions. And so I think it's more here the designs we use, um, in particular now that experience sampling is getting rather popular. It's um, those types of data that we use, but not the questions that we ask. Yeah, the, the within-person variability is, is, I think, key because the assumption is that these personality dimensions or individual differences, dimensions, they, they, they serve an adaptive function or they are somehow interlinked with the environment. So I'm not executing a kind of robotic script to be extroverted it's always when they are reacting to opportunities affordances to be extroverted in a specific situation and that is that situation is also dependent on, on, on time series like even the most extroverted person might become tired of partying after uh, being awake and dancing for 72 hours, for example. So we always need a kind of environmental stimulus to evaluate the reaction of a person and assess that reaction as fitting a certain trait description, right? So in my own work, I have used the logic of contingencies and I have tried to reformulate certain personality dimensions as linked to individual differences in, in within-person contingencies. So if there is a, an opportunity to socialize and there are various other conditions that are fulfilled, then some people will start socializing. For example, you're in the waiting room and there is another person and you start talking to that person versus you start looking at your phone or, or getting your laptop out of your bag and start working, for example. These contingencies, I think, are a big part of what constitutes personality. And to really measure them, you do need um, yeah, more dynamic designs. Otherwise, the only thing you have is a person's self-description of these tendencies. I was wondering, so you just described these, like this idea of contingencies, right? Like person X acts in situation yeah. Y in that and that manner and so on. And so I wonder, so what's what's the whole um, purpose of that exercise? Like, would you want to collect as many contingencies as possible to describe the person or are you interested in the association between these contingencies and something else? I'm, I'm not quite yet sure I understand um, 
what's like you said they are highly advantageous like for what so what's the purpose here that's a great challenge uh julia well the what i said is more like started from a theoretical exercise to also bridge certain traditions that have existed alongside in personality psychology so at the one hand or on the one hand you have these these structuralist traditions that are determining the number of dimensions or factors like big five and on the other hand you have more social cognitive people like you know most famously i think walter michel And the idea uh, that I just explained tries to connect those two traditions. So it, it started from a more theoretical exercise. What is the practical use, are you asking, I think? Uh, and, and how would you go about sampling these contingencies? One first approach that I took, but it's not certainly not the, the last word, or, or it should not be the last word, is trying to identify core contingencies that 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 I think or we think are central in a certain trait. So for example, the social sociability aspect or contingency of extroversion. But should we go further and we should sample these contingencies more broadly? We should perhaps empirically identify clusters of contingencies or or even types of contingencies. I think that would be super exciting and it's There is no research, to my knowledge, that has already done that, but there should be. So, but in some sense, so to me, it seems like it's just a, like a re rephrasing of maybe existing personality items. So, right, you got that item. I am the life of the party, but the corresponding contingency is something like when I'm like when I'm on a party, yeah. I socialize a lot and gather a lot of attention and so on. So, and yeah. um, you will probably just different ways to operationalize personality that's true and, and and that is indeed one step that i that i once took in a, in a research project that i just reconceptualized the big five in terms of contingencies and and then you can just see you know how how, how large are the correlations between more descriptive scales and more dynamically formulated ones so that is one option, but you could, of course, go much further. Like once you have perhaps a representative set of situations, you have a representative set of emotions, emotional reactions, you have a representative set of uh, cognitions. I mean, this is maybe science fiction a little bit, but once you have this matrix of, of a more representative set of the most important domains, you can, of course, go much beyond that and then you might actually find, and I, I, I would think this is even plausible, that these empirical dimensions of contingencies or the types that then emerge, they might not even map onto the big five all that well. Mm -hmm. So what would that imply about the big five if these contingencies wouldn't map onto the big five? <laughs> That's a really good question. Yeah, that, that it 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 would imply that that there is no, at least when we look at these more contingency-like uh, patterns, that these are not a plausible substrates of the big five. And, and but then we can, of course, I mean, there is a whole discussion, of course, whether 
this trade level is the most useful. And Renee has done also a lot of work on, on like nuances and there are other people that look at facets. So then the answer might be, well, we have to look at those more subtle levels, uh, but at least at this very high level of the big five, it would mean that there is no obvious fundamental layer or endophenotype. Some people use that word that we have to look for. And then I would really ask the question, well, where do we then have to look, right? Is there, is there anything out there that brings us closer to the true nature of these, well, in that case, five traits? Or are these five dimensions really something different? Or do they reflect more perhaps the social evaluations of a person and, and there is no real substrate or endophenotype behind that impression or social evaluation. If I understand you correctly, there is this in a descriptive sense, there is not much of a contradiction between these two levels, between individual level variability and this within individual level of variability. But causally there might be some distinctions applicable. I think it's just very helpful if this discussion in the sense that my impression is that sometimes people confuse these levels and think that one level naturally emerges from the other, whereas it might not happen. It is not guaranteed that we can use these within individual level configurations over time across situations to explain individual differences in, in broader traits such as extraversion. Because these individual differences in these contingencies have to come from somewhere in the first place, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, and so we are uh, we are running in circles. But then, of course, the question is so. Um, and that's lead right leads to the question. So, what are we using personality for? Like, why are we interested in this? Are we interested in it because we're interested in intra-individual events, or do we just want to maybe like um, assess people's personality and predict who is going to turn out um, which way, or find someone who will like our product and so on? And I think for that purpose, it's perfectly fine to stay on the between subjects level. Mm -hmm. Being mindful of time, I think we can move on and it very naturally follows from this discussion uh, the, another question. Could you maybe describe what do you think are the key achievements that personality science has made? When I pondered the question, three things came up. Um, I think we have learned um, quite a lot about the predictive validity of, of personality dimensions. So I think that's what Julia referred to now in her second cluster, if I recall correctly. So just predicting stuff and, and, and using between-person constructs. It might be trivial, um, the predictive validity of our constructs, but it's actually quite remarkable um, yeah, how the range of life outcomes, for example, that are predicted by personality constructs and therefore also the very broad application of our fields in society. And I, I would argue increasingly so. So I'm, I was yesterday in a, in a kind of political discussion. To my surprise, all these people were familiar with this infamous color classification of the system based on the MBTI that you can classify individuals in certain types and then use a color so this is very yellow or very blue so completely outside of the mainstream of, of personality psychology of course not something that i use in my research but it's quite remarkable how this level of thinking has penetrated society and i think it owes its success 
to the knowledge that we have about the predictive validity of our construct. So many companies, many institutions are interested in measuring them, these dimensions for that reason. The second uh, achievement is, is we know a lot more about variability and uh, stability and change. So we started, I think, as a field with, with very perhaps coarse assumptions, like, you know, what is stable, what is not. And we attach certain labels like this, we call a trait and, and something else we call a state. And often it was based on intuitions, I think, also when people develop and when they stop developing. And I think we have as a field, especially in the, in the last two or three decades, we have really gained a much more nuanced and complete understanding of of stability patterns. When is stability higher? When is it lower? Mean level changes. Of course, this is all indebted to the really great work of Brent Roberts and, and, and his colleagues. Is I think well, we can actually be proud of also some progress regarding structural description. So um, the big five model, we can argue about it for a very long time. You will always find some detractors and you will find people that say, no, there are six uh, dimensions and you are you have people that say, no, we have to look more deeply or more in a more nuanced fashion. But I think these models have had quite good use in terms of simplifying the description of people and, and of facilitating also talk and discussion, not just between researchers, but also between people. And that's the, the, the example again about this color classification. Although we might not like um, what is underneath it, and, and we, we as scientists, we doubt the validity of these classifications, but in certain groups, they can, of course, facilitate talking about individual differences. You can only do that if you have a shared language. Mm -hmm. So those are my three candidates. Um, so I, I do agree that I think um, our field is doing strong on the descriptive side. And maybe that's even, um, I mean, descriptive research is sometimes used like, I don't know, like, oh, it's not as interesting. Um, but I do think um, we have a lot of very interesting descriptive research on mean level patterns and so on. And um, so I do think that is indeed an achievement. And maybe it's also like kind of telling that um, we are kind of like the, the field of, well, it's not that simple. So, right. So is personality cast in stone or is it essentially not, not stable at all? Oh, well, it's neither of the two. It's somewhere in between. Then is personality, is it just your genes or is it just your environment? Well, it's a little bit of both, right? And so, um, oh, what, what about like um, self and other ratings? Do people agree about people's personality? Well, they kind of do, but also a lot of the time they don't. So it's not that easy. I, I guess it reflects, one could say it reflects nuance or it reflects that our stories are kind of like, just like, well, it's a little bit of both. Um, but that's not necessarily um, a bad thing, I guess. But considering, for example, the, the predictive validity of personality, so I do see a lot of potential there, but at the same time, I see that in the published literature, 
a lot of studies are not really putting prediction to, to its proper test. I mean, we have that loose sense of prediction. Oh, we have like a regression and there are predictors and then we got variance explained. So there was prediction, right? But if you look into other fields like machine learning, you know that there are like more stringent criteria. So you need to cross-validate findings and so on. And so there have been um, calls to um, apply this more consistently. And I do think um, we will have to see to which extent the, our claims that personality predicts a lot of things survives these more rigorous tests. And um, when we start to talk about prediction, we also really need to um, talk about, right, like how much variability can we actually explain? Yes, personality might be um, a good predictor, but maybe it's not as powerful as people would like it to be for their applications, um, their advertisements, and so on. So I'm, I'm somewhat more skeptical on the um, prediction side. Uh, one thing I would like to add is, um, so I think one of the major achievements of the field um, is more on the method side of things. So um, I do think we are a bit like the nerds among the more socially oriented psychologists and that there's a lot of focus on psychometrics, on measurement models, on validation and so on. And I do think there has been like a lot of like super interesting developments from which other fields could profit. I mean, there's always room for improvement, right? But I do think it's something that we can be proud of as a field. I, I also think the predictive validity is a, is a very important question. But maybe we haven't maximized this yet or explored the ways of maximizing this yet. But it, because it probably has also important, very important theoretical implications other than just practical implications for the sake of prediction. And because I think a lot of fields of psychology or subfields of psychology are based on this tacit assumptions that people and their experiences are independent of one another. For example, social psychology, uh, but the predictive validity of personality would show the opposite that the experiences that people get by virtue of being on different life trajectories being as a result of different life outcomes. They are not independent. People are entangled with their experiences and, and, and experimental psychology, I think, is yet to grasp the implications of this uh, pervasive in interdependence of people and their experiences yet. And yes, the nature-nurture uh, thing, uh, I think, to which Julia implied, is also uh, something that has penetrated the society quite largely. Uh, I, I had a, I had an opportunity to give a talk in a prison just before the lockdown, and, and then we sat down, and was the first thing one, one prisoner asked me was, are we going to talk about nature and nurture today? And so this really is something that does resonate with people. What do you think, what are some of the most puzzling findings that personality scientists have, uh, and, and I mean robust findings that just keep coming up and again and again and again, that personality scientists have found. I think there has sometimes been a complaint that personality science is kind of boring because we are studying these boring questions, so perhaps like finding extroverted people have more friends or something like this. But what are, what are some of the puzzling findings that pe people just couldn't predict before actually having seen the evidence? I think the most puzzling finding really relates back to the discussion we had before. And, and perhaps it's only puzzling to me, but it really puzzles me a great deal that we haven't found these robust substrates of, of personality. And this is really true on many different levels. And, and there is the level of genetics that... that I know that you know much more about than I do, Renee. But there, in that level, there is there is no, you know, obvious like candidate gene or no 
know, easy cluster of a handful of, of, of causal agents that, that make people, for example, more introverted or extroverted. But also on the environmental side, I think this knowledge is, is supremely lacking. So we also don't know yeah, robust environmental causes of, of extroversion if we stick to this example. Should that have been surprising that this doesn't exist? Perhaps not. Perhaps it is only surprising if you're uh, naive and, uh, and, and are still stuck in this old-fashioned uh, thinking like there is are certain fluids in the body and if you just add a little black bile then the person becomes more neurotic and, and vice versa if you take some of it away the person becomes more stable but I guess I would have expected that we have made more progress as a field like what is what is actually underlying our dimensions and, and the same is true for intelligence and many, many different important outcomes. And heights and body mass <laughs> and a lot of other things that yeah. other fields are, are dealing with. And so maybe it's not a not a bug, but a feature. Yeah. This is just, and it has been very counterintuitive yeah. because as lay people, we do have these lay theories about how, how we are shaped by our experiences, how we are shaped particular genes and, and so on. But it turns out it's not the case, right? Yeah, and, and lay people look for those simple explanations. And, and even in, in our psychology studies, like I've, I've been in many group discussions with students where the, the assignment, the group assignment might be like, you know, think about an event in your life that caused X. And we ask students to reflect on this. Of course, you can reflect on, on this on a more narrative level. So what is your own story about, you know, how you are and how you have become and the environments that have shaped you. But I think on a more sample level, statistical level, we are completely lacking this knowledge. It's quite puzzling. But indeed, it might be a feature and not a bug. But... But then what is the feature and why is it a feature? Mm -hmm. It makes us humble, right? Learning about yeah. the complexity of the mind and behavior. And that might very well be one of the most important advances that we've made in at some level as disappointing as it might sound, but we have to face that. So, yeah, so maybe one, one distinction that is here interesting, um, yeah, because you just brought up that example, you asked students that they should like think back what caused something, right? And so um, there's that distinction between like, Exactly forward causal questions like how does X affect Y and backward causal questions what caused Y right and so we are now like really with that Y question what causes personality and um, so I'm not sure whether I find it puzzling that we couldn't find one like large factor that determines it but maybe that's just not puzzling to me because I'm so used to the stories now or feel that are like it, it is that but it's also something else right and oh there's so much more but I do think one thing that I do find generally puzzling or at least puzzling in contrast with, I think, what most people would think is that we um, essentially do. And so I looked at the list, like Brent Roberts compiled a list of robust findings in personality research. And so that finding that um, there are at best small effects of the shared environment. So there is very little in the upbringing of parents of kids within a family that makes the kids more similar in their personality, right? Beyond the effect of the genes and so on. And I do think that is very puzzling for many people because they do assume that the parenting does have 
like massive effects and massive consistent effects across siblings as well. Now I only do have one child, so I cannot yet see whether I would treat my next child the same, but maybe you have better experiences there or better explanations just because you got a larger sample of your own kids. I have three children. It's been humbling also in this respect and also very enriching and interesting to see how different they are. And they need a differential treatment. So that's not necessarily bad. At the same time, you have this norm as a parent. And that's just an example of this yeah, self-fulfilling lay assumption that has a causal influence perhaps in a certain way that we should not treat our children differently and we should level the resources or balance the resources that we provide them with or the amount of love that we express uh, as if there would be a kind of scale on which to measure that. This is, of course, also wrong. But this highlights, I think, the role that these assumptions play in the lives of individuals. For me as well, one of the findings that is very, has been very puzzling, but I don't think it's that often talked about is based on the current best evidence that we have, how little variability there is between people from different countries. I mean, we have this lay, powerful lay theories yeah. about different nationalities, how the French are and the Germans so, and, and Russians and, and the British and so on. But in, when you look at the actual data, there is microscopic differences, if any reliable differences at all, and at least the self-ratings of people or ratings they have provided about somebody else. That's really puzzling. That's just my personal opinion. Maybe there's arguments against that, but I feel like with those um, like cross-national comparisons and actually whenever you change the language, that feels like an area where I would be much more willing to interpret non-verbal measures of personality if we had any good ones. Right, so I would be much more interested in, okay, we, we take somebody from a, from a different country in a situation, but then there's so many other variables you, you can't hold constant. Um, so I'm not sure whether I, I would be willing to interpret the self-reports or even the other reports as um, very good evidence that there are little differences. And I mean, there are obvious differences in things that probably count as personalities, such as scripts for how to act in certain situations. Yeah, I think this is a super interesting literature and, and I'm not an expert on it. Um... I think it's more broadly perhaps related to an issue that Bob Hogan also differentiates, like identity as self-description and the reputation. So, for example, the Germans are known to be hardworking. You know, that is a reputation. And then, of course, you can ask individual people from Germany and from other countries. And I think it's an open question what we should regard as the, the, yeah, the valid description, like should we, should we use the self-rating, should we use perhaps what is, could be described as reputations, and should we call these reputations stereotypes or even unfair prejudices? In the case of the Germans, it was a positive thing. And then I'm always interested in these more behavioral studies. And I know there has been some work on looking at punctuality of trains or what happens with a wallet if you drop it in a city yeah, versus uh, Singapore versus Japan versus other countries. And, and uh, yeah, I, I didn't do any updates on that literature, but I would always look at those more behavioral traces of evidence, perhaps. Although you could always argue that the behavioral level is also very complex, because, of course, if you're in a wealthy German suburb and you drop your wallet, you know, and then somebody doesn't really need the money, 
you know, you, you might get the wallet back. But of course, if you're somewhere in a very poor part of the world, you know, of course, maybe people will be more likely to keep at least some of the money because they need it for survival. And then finally, I think there is an issue of expression, you know, so the, the different traits might be expressed differently and, and we might confuse the expression with the actual trade level. So for example, my wife is from Brazil. So I, I've visited Brazil quite often. People from Brazil that I know are, are much warmer in their interactions in this style, but does that mean they are more extroverted or agreeable or any other thing that is in our dimensional models? That I am less sure of. So I do think because I'm not that sure about like a trade independent of trade yeah. expression myself, but I have to admit that like the statistical models we use per default, right? We do a lot of like there's a latent factor that affects the indicators and that is very much assuming the existence of that underlying factor that expresses itself in different behaviors. And then these behaviors might also be affected by culture, but that is like an independent factor somewhere else, right? And so I do think like in the field, even though it's not an explicit consensus, the way we look at things implies that there's like a trade independent of trade expression, but it's a strong ontological uh, take, I would say. Okay, thank you. I think being mindful of time now, I tried to summarize our discussion today. What we've learned from this discussion or how we summarized that personality science really is a science about patterns and it's about patterns of behavior and thinking and feeling and motivation and it's at its at its two levels like between individual level and then within individual level and and how these two levels exactly intersect is is yet up for discussion in a descriptive sense and and, and especially as Julia pointed out in in a sort of explanatory way how we cross these two levels but I think we, we have had some major descriptive advances that the field has made, and there are many important and clearly not trivial findings that we have, have, have been able to accumulate, especially due to these heuristically very useful structural models, such as the big five, as, as Jan pointed out. But, but the, one of the main lessons we, we seem to be um, drawing from this is that it's all very humbling. We are just getting to more and more realizing how complex human mind and behavior really are and how and how many levels we need to address this and how much detail and, and, and careful and non-naive thinking we need to bring into the field to, to make uh, reliable uh, progress, good progress. Is that a fair summary? I think a call for humility is always a, a fair summary of, of, of any scientific discussions and our discussion. And I think it's a sign of maturity also. Yes. So, you know, we all, many scientists, they have you know, hobbies of, of looking at literatures in different fields. I am really interested in, in history and in uh, physics, for example. And if I read books about history and books about physics is always also the same like the conclusions that seem to be set in stone are nuanced are made more complex they they then deviate also a little bit more of the perceptions of the average layperson mm -hmm. uh, things in physics for example what what gravity is is in the current understanding of physicists far removed from what the average person perceives gravity to be and perhaps that's good. 
I think somebody has said that one of the main tasks that scientists have is just to unlearn our intuitions and, and, and fight against our own intuitions about how the world should be. Because if we go with our intuitions, then we more often than not, we, we just go wrong. So I do wonder whether um, we as a field are willing to go down that path where we end up with things that are less intuitive and less aligned, right? Because right now, in particular in personality psychology, we are still very much using concepts and explanations and so on that are highly intuitive, right? Like the trade labels we use and so on. And so it would be interesting to see um, like whether the field as a whole is willing to move into that direction because it changes quite a bit if your traits don't have like those neat labels anymore that correspond to something that you can have intuitions about. And so that would be exciting to see whether this is the way um, the field goes in the future or whether it's some entirely different direction. It is often easy to criticize and chastise ourselves because we use these simple intuitions and, and methods that have good predictive validity. And to the extent that we move beyond those things, beyond measurements that are too simple, I think it would require us to, to become more collaborative. Like the example of physics again, no physicist nowadays sits under a tree and watches an apple fall. You know, they are, they are buying very, very complicated or creating very, very complicated structures like in CERN in Switzerland to collectively study important questions. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think this is a model that personality psychology should also follow is, is our intuitions, our measurements, our designs are so limited that some of these questions that we have been discussing are just impossible to study with our simple designs that you could pull off in one semester with a few graduate students. Perhaps we need really much better designs uh, and having statisticians on board, geneticists, data from different countries, from different timescales um, to really understand how people work, how they function and how we can describe these patterns. Yes, it's probably another sign of maturity when, we, uh, when we're willing to move towards more incremental and, and slowly developing science. And, and, and these new people coming to the field, they, they yeah. accept that their future will be being part of a big team rather than being this big star who comes up with this fancy theory and gets all the headlines. On, on this note, I think it's a, it's a good point to end. Uh, I would really like to thank you for this very interesting and I think, frankly, very important discussion uh, for the field. Thank you for being in the podcast. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you for inviting us, Renee. Here's the summary of some of EJP's latest articles. One article in the latest issue of the European Journal of Personality addresses a topic of wide social relevance and one that is also hotly debated. Why are there somewhat more women or men in certain occupational fields? As with many socially important topics, this question often attracts extreme positions, or sometimes perhaps perceptions that researchers and commentators are taking extreme positions. The authors of this overview article, Stuart Williams and Halsey, appear to argue for a middle-of-the-ground position. Reviewing a range of evidence, while the article contains over 300 citations, they argue that gender differences in who ends up in which occupational field cannot be fully explained neither by social factors, such as discrimination, nor by reasons stemming from inside people, such as their interests, preferences and skills. 
Instead, they try to argue that several reasons play a role at the same time. The authors also present their view of some policy implications of their conclusions. Of course, one article can never, and should never, settle a discussion, and surely there are many who would disagree with Stuart Williams and Halsey. But either way, this article can be a useful resource for anyone who is interested in the topic. In particular, I hope that this article stimulates personality researchers to think how they could contribute to a better understanding of why men and women are sometimes attracted to different career paths. Quite possibly, the constructs that personality researchers work with can play a role, but there is very little research on this role yet. The article by Stuart Williamson Halsey is also accompanied by two commentaries from leading authors on this topic. These commentaries offer further nuances about how gender and career choices may interact and how this is studied. One of the commentaries also provides a counter-argument to the position taken by Stuart Williamson Halsey. Moving on, a paper by Damaris Ashwaden and her colleagues focuses on something that has reshaped the lives of many of us for now, the COVID-19 pandemic. Specifically, they present data from a large sample on how the big five personality traits are correlated with responses to the pandemic. Some of the findings are intuitive and consistent with authors' pre-registered hypothesis. For example, high neuroticism was associated with stronger concerns about the pandemic. But some of the findings caught authors by surprise. For example, more neurotic individuals took less precautions to deal with the virus. In another article, Daniel Danner and his colleagues focus on one of the fundamental questions of personality science. How to use personality traits to predict life outcomes? They use sophisticated modeling to explore how much breaking the big five domains into facets can improve researchers' ability to predict the range of life outcomes such as education, income and health. It turns out that facets can help to go a bit further than the big five alone in both predicting the outcomes and better understanding their personality correlates. Next, Usselman and Specht explore whether becoming a parent is linked with the big five personality traits and changes in these traits. They used a very large longitudinal sample from Germany. Inspired by the social investment principle, they expected that having a child should bring about an increase in conscientiousness as well as in agreeableness and emotional stability. But these hypotheses were not confirmed. Instead, they found it less open and more extroverted. Individuals were more likely to start a family and that both extroversion and openness traits decreased after transition to parenthood. Moving on, Jahans Milley tested the hypothesis that more open individuals would choose to seek for more information in an experiment, even though this additional information did not confer any benefits for their performance in the experimental task. Although this hypothesis was not supported, authors found that more curious individuals tended to seek for additional information, even when they did not have to do this. And finally, in a series of experiments, Human and her colleagues explored whether individuals reliably differ in their ability to make others form consistent personality impressions of them, a trait which they called expressive accuracy. And indeed, they found that some people's personality traits were more consistently rated than the personality traits of other people. For example, individuals who were more accurately rated in their personality traits after a brief face-to-face -face interaction were also likely to be more accurately rated by their close others and by those who had only seen their Facebook profiles. <laughs>